0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for coming. This is going to be a great show. If you can, please become Patreon supporters. That's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. You get extra episodes of the show. We have a great extended interview that we did with Bob Shear. Also a great extended interview we did with Alex Vitale, where we spill some tea, as the kids call it, about the Young Turks and why they're repeating problematic tough-on-crime talking points. And I'm going to start the show because we have two people joining us. Chris Hedges. People know and love Chris Hedges. He's been on the show before. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who was a foreign correspondent for 15 years for The New York Times, where he served as the Middle East Bureau Chief and Balkan Bureau Chief for the paper. He previously worked overseas for the Dallas Morning News, the Christian Science Monitor, and NPR. He was the host of the Emmy Award-nominated RT America show, On Contact, and now has his own show at The Real News. He's a columnist at Sheer Post, and you can find his writing there. Also, we are so happy to be bringing on the following guest who everyone loved when he was on recently. It's funny, he mentioned writing a review about Gorbachev. And I remember thinking, oh, I should ask Bob about Gorbachev more because he's so relevant right now and also so misunderstood by so many people or just not known about. And then lo and behold, Gorbachev dies. Anyway, we're going to get into that in a second. But who am I talking about? I'm talking about Robert Shear or Bob Shear. Robert Shear, the publisher of Shear Post who has written eight books, including The Great American Stick Up, How Reagan Republicans and Clinton Democrats Rich Wall Street While Mugging Main Street. They Know Everything About You, How Data Collecting Corporations and Snooping Government Agencies Are Destroying Democracy. He's a clinical professor of communications at the Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism at the University of Southern California. And he has interviewed Jimmy Carter, Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton, and others, Between 1964 and 1969, he was a Vietnam correspondent, managing editor, and editor-in-chief of Ramparts magazine. So, without any further ado, let us bring in Robert Shear and Chris Hedges. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining. You guys are both such great guests to have on. For really, for whatever topic, but this especially, I'm, I'm especially excited to have you guys on because both of you covered and experienced and witnessed the fall of the Soviet Union. And you have great insights into not only this history, but also a real understanding and analysis of how that history relates to where we are today. And again, we are talking about, among other things, the death of Mikhail Gorbachev, who was the president, the last president of the Soviet Union, who died. And I was going to start with you, Bob, because you were in Russia working as a journalist in 1987. You got an early copy of Gorbachev's book, Perestroika, New Thinking for a Country in the World. You wrote a review of this book, and the review was called From Moscow, First Report of an Unprecedented Call for Change, The Gorbachev Manifesto. That was published in 1987. And you open your review by writing, when Mikhail Gorbachev comes to the United States next month for his summit conference with President Reagan, he will convey the main theme of this book, Colon, the Soviet Union is now in the grip of a new realism about its domestic crisis and world priorities. And you close your review, writing, the mood here in Moscow has become considerably more optimistic on U.S.-Soviet relations since the book was written in late summer. Now senior officials in the foreign ministry, the military, and on the Communist Party Central Committee talk confidently of a profoundly important and impending reversal of the nuclear arms race. According to these sources, the summit will witness not only a ban on intermediate-range nuclear weapons, but also a possible agreement in principle on the destruction of half of the strategic nuclear arsenal in return for strict U.S. observance of the ABM treaty. If this second deal goes through, it may well mean that the Cold War is on its way out and that the new era of peace and new politics that Gorbachev writes about is truly at hand. That was 1987 that you wrote that. By 1991, the Cold War was over. The Soviet Union no longer existed. But was peace at hand at this point?
1: (laughs) You know, you can have peace if you really want it. To sort of take the old Beatle slogan, war is over. We didn't want it. The fact is, uh, it was really quite amazing. I was an exchange correspondent. You left it out of my introduction, but I spent 29 years uh, at the Los Angeles Times. And in 1987, I was a a national correspondent, but they sent me over to Moscow. I worked in Moscow News, which had editions in about 30 languages. And uh, at that time, I secured one of the first, I think the first copy that anyone had around uh, circulating, and I read it. I read it in the old National Hotel, the same hotel Lenin had been in uh, during the revolution. The historic place, and I was blown away. And I knew a lot about Gorbachev and what he'd done already, but this is where we had a formal manifesto about Perestroika, the restructuring, fundamental restructuring of Soviet communism, to make it accountable, to make it a, a mixed economy, to make it. Uh, respect individual rights, and so forth, and combined with the notion of glossness, which was free expression, and so forth. And he felt the two had to go in hand in hand. If the people could not criticize the government, if the government could not be replaced. So it was kind of a social democratic ideal or fantasy. Uh, The very kind of people who had, on the social democratic side who had run Germany, you know, France at different points, and even the Labour Party in England, Suddenly, this was Gorbachev. Uh, And there were plenty of people that I ran into, I was there for months at the time, who thought, wow, he's selling out, and what is he getting in return? He's challenging nationalism. He's actually challenging a certain patriotism. And it was almost as if this was now, maybe people don't know, Henry Wallace or even Roosevelt. He was talking about the can-do society. And what happened was, and Reagan himself, Reagan is somebody I did interview at some length over the years, even before he was governor, uh, and Nixon, who I interviewed a lot after he was in office, and Nixon was sounding at that time the same themes: war is out because of nuclear weapons, because of their destruction. You cannot pursue your goals with military means. Uh, you have to have an accommodation. That's why what Nixon went to China and negotiated with Mao Zedong, uh, you know, and Nixon, of course, had been involved earlier with Eisenhower's opening at uh, the detente uh, as vice president. And so there was an understanding, and that's what Gorbachev's book was all about, uh, that there has to be an accommodation, that the Cold War made no sense. There was also a profound evaluation of the failure of the command economy. Uh, he said, you know, Marx, uh, they, people talked about socialism. It they, they was a good idea, but they didn't tell us how to get there. And we have failed. We produce all this steel, all this grain and everything. We can't feed our people. We can't make our things run. And this has to be a fundamental change. So for anybody seriously interested in human values, advancing the interests of ordinary people, it should have been embraced. Instead, uh, the the war ideology took over in the United States, beginning with the neoconservatives who then were on the Republican side. They now are safely in the uh, Biden uh, State Department. Uh, no, we have to have a Cold War. We have to have a bigger military. We have to humble them. And so they they betrayed what Reagan had really promised. They betrayed the idea of really getting rid of a lot of these weapons. Even the first President Bush thought you could cut the military budget by 30% at first and even more. Well, they rallied against all that. And instead, uh, they said, you can't make an accommodation with this communism the way Nixon did with with China, Uh, we have to humiliate, overthrow, and get rid of him. And they made Gorbachev the enemy. uh, And they found this uh, hopeless drunk of Yeltsin, uh, you know, and uh, they were going to be able to manipulate him. And the problem is everything was falling apart. They got rid of Gorbachev, but everything was falling apart. And then in desperation, uh, and I remember this because I was writing about this all the time and, you know, making trips and so forth. Putin was a a good bureaucrat in St. Petersburg, working with the reform crowd, crowd, subject and others. His great uh, virtue was that he was sober, that he could show up for work, that he could make things function, that he was not personally corrupt. And so the the band was beating. Yeltsin has to hire Putin. And Yeltsin reaches out to St. Petersburg, brings Putin in, and Putin delivers. The guy shows up, he works, he does, you know, uh, exercise and, uh, and judo and all this stuff and and things are getting back to 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 some norm normal right and then what happens and it happens everywhere where we claim we want reform and I'll let Chris take over now but what happens is every time we we claim we want a strong reformer when the reformer gets serious it happened in Iran with Mossadegh it happened in India with Nehru it happened anywhere in the world and it happened with Putin. You got a reformer well the reformer says sure i want to reform but my first obligation is to my people they have to come out winning uh, the women can't be prostitutes and send them over to saudi arabia uh, everybody can't go get drunk uh, on a high level we can't have the tycoons making all the money we have to be able to deliver a society we have to respect uh, our old values of our history or you know and uh, and so forth we have to, they have their own nationalism that doesn't go away In the Federation any more than it goes away in the Ukraine or someplace. And suddenly, oh, wait a minute, this Putin can't be controlled. And everybody forgets Putin was the guy who defeated the Communist Party. There was real concern of those who uh, wanted change uh, that the Communist Party would be the alternative to Gorbachev. You'll get rid of him, get the hard line in, the military will back him, and so forth. So Putin was the ideal reformer who can make things work, but certainly was no communist. He respected traditional religion. He was a mixed market, the whole thing, okay? And so what happens, he defeats the communists in this big election. He's the guy, and he, and I do think there's a piece of history that everybody should watch, Oliver Stone's extensive interview with Putin, where Putin keeps referring to the U.S. and Western Europe as our partners. Where are our partners? And our, you know they weren't supposed to be building the NATO around to destroy us and make us the new enemy. They're supposed to be our partners, our partners in getting rid of nuclear weapons, our partners in developing our economy, and so forth. And, and the same thing that happened that is happening now with China. We don't want strong partners. We don't want people out there who have their own nationalism. We don't want a multipolar world. And so Putin becomes the enemy because he will not dance to our song. That's what happens. And Putin becomes the enemy and no concessions will be made, whether about Crimea, which after all was given to the Ukraine by Khrushchev, who was the Ukrainian. And, you know, this was when it was still the Soviet Union. There will be no concession to Russian nationalism. There will be no respect for their security concerns. There will just be humiliation. We want puppets, you know. And when we don't have puppets, we don't care whether they're communists or anti-communists, which Putin is we will destroy him. And at the end of the day, the guy who understood this best was George Orwell. We need an enemy. We need an, an enemy that we make unattractive and threatening, you know, and then we stand for all the virtues. And why? Because that's the only thing we do well as a society anymore, is imagine enemies, whether they're terrorists or communists, whatever they are. And then we mobilize around some crazy, extreme patriotism and nationalism and A ridiculously huge military budget, building weapons that if they're ever used, there's no life on this planet. And that's what we're all about. And we basically have a dysfunctional sick culture uh, that is imperialist out of necessity. We don't know how uh, to play with the other children. It's just that simple. We don't want strong other nations out there meeting their people's needs and where we actually count on trade, you know, and and doing well and working hard. No, we want to be the bully on the block. And that's what, it, you know, whether it's a Trump or Biden, that's what they're good at.
0: Chris, you actually mentioned this phenomenon in a piece that you just wrote at Shear Post, which is called, the piece is called uh, Ukraine and the Politics of Permanent War. And you say the militaries who have waged permanent war have invested heavily in controlling the public narrative. The enemy, whether Saddam Hussein or Vladimir Putin, is always the epitome of evil, the new Hitler. So I want to ask you more about that and your new piece on censorship. But before going there, what did you see at the same time? Where were you when the Soviet Union fell? And what are your thoughts on Gorbachev?
2: Well, I covered the revolutions in Eastern Europe. So East Germany, Czechoslovakia, and Romania. And of course, uh, Gorbachev, I think for myself and all of us who were in Eastern Europe in 1989 was a heroic figure because you had the East Germans pleading. With the Soviet government to send in the tanks, as they did in 68 in Prague or in Hungary, when was Hungary, 56 maybe, right, Bob? Yeah. And he wouldn't do it because he was a humane and decent human being. And uh, he essentially made possible the, the uh, recapturing of autonomy by Eastern European states that had been essentially run by quizzling regimes that were subservient to Moscow. And that—that that is the tragedy. Uh, he, he was betrayed. I mean, I think Putin said correctly about Gorbachev that he was naive. And I would argue that Putin in the early years was naive about the intentions of the West and, in particular, the United States, uh, because in order to perpetuate the permanent war economy, uh, y- you have to have an enemy. And if somebody won't be an enemy, then they're going to be made the enemy. So Gorbachev and in the first years Putin were all reaching out to have observer status with NATO or some kind of new security pact that would include the Russian Federation but of course the arms industry and the militarists were having none of it with the fall of the Berlin Wall I was in uh was in uh, East Germany the night it I was there when it was breached uh NATO, of course, should have been rendered obsolete. NATO, created in 1949 to prevent Soviet expansion into Central and Eastern Europe, had no longer any raison d'etre. But the militarists were uh, not only intent on keeping NATO, but then carrying out a process of provocations against Russia by expanding NATO throughout Eastern and Central Europe, violating a promise. That had been made by Thatcher and Hans Dietrich Genscher, the foreign minister of Germany and the Reagan administration, uh, not to, uh, or I guess it was the Bush, Baker, it was Baker, not to expand NATO beyond the borders of a unified Germany. There was no reason to expand it other than it was a billion, multi billion dollar arms market. Because by expanding NATO and incorporating these countries into NATO, they have to have NATO compatible military equipment. Uh, and that meant uh, getting rid of the old Soviet bloc equipment and, 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 and t- most of it was done through IMF loans, taking out huge loans uh, to buy all of this hardware. Then there was the promise, well, okay, we'll expand, but we won't put U.S. troops. Clinton made that promise. He violated that. I think there's going to be 100,000 U.S. troops. Uh, and, and George Kennan, the great uh, Soviet specialist. Uh, who who formulated the policy of containment, said that the expansion of NATO was the greatest strategic blunder in the post-Cold War era. Uh, And everybody, Burns, uh, in this memo that was leaked, was published by WikiLeaks, they all knew what uh, Putin would do, uh, because Ukraine was not unreasonable. And you have to remember that uh, Russia was invaded three times uh, in... uh, or two times in the 20th century, and then once the 19th, Napoleon and the Kaiser uh, took huge parts of Russia and brest Litovsk. Of course, they ceded almost all of the Ukraine and the Baltic states and everything else. Uh, and then, of course, uh, in 1941 with the, the Nazis. Uh, and, and, uh, and the Nazis devastated. I mean, this is all another one of the fallacies of the Cold War, Russia was destroyed, uh, and and Stalin had no interest after the end of World War II in another conflict. He was desperately trying to re- rebuild uh, basically all all of European Russia that was in ruins. Uh, uh, so uh, this is I wrote a column on Bob's uh, site called Chronicle of a War Foretold. It was completely predictable. We knew. Now I'm not excusing what Putin did in Ukraine, uh, but. Uh, you know, historians, when they go back and look at World War I, will always talk about the Treaty of Versailles, the humiliation that was imposed on Germans after World War I, the onerous reparations that destroyed the economy and our, and the credibility of Weimar as being a causal factor in creating the rise of fascism, as it was, along with, of course, the Depression. Uh, which trash, and then, and then the, the international banking system, uh, which just sucked ev- every ounce of marrow out of the Weimar Republic. They couldn't even pay unemployment insurance. They had, what, 30% at least unemployment, maybe higher. Uh, so, I mean, there are, and, and I look at the same with, with uh, the war in Ukraine. It's not unreasonable, especially given the history, for Russia to ask that Ukraine remain a neutral country. Uh, and the U.S. just couldn't let it go. It was hubris. It was, especially at the beginning, this sense of omnipotence that the Soviet Union was broken and weak and, of course, didn't exist. Uh, They could do whatever they want. It was a unipolar world. And then, of course, there was money to be made uh, on top of it. Uh, So the whole thing is tragic. Uh, You know, this proxy war in Ukraine will destroy Ukraine. God knows how many Ukrainian families will uh, spend the rest of their lives convulsed in grief, uh, how much suffering we're visiting on Ukraine. It's a very cynical process, and uh, again, Russia as well. Um, so, I, you know, I think we do have to condemn the invasion of Ukraine. It's a preempt—it's preemptive war. It's wrong. On the other hand, we have to be very clear that Putin was baited. Uh, I just, i you know, that is just incontrovertible. You can't argue against it, and not only bait it, but the very architects, uh, and and read that memo from Burns, they all knew what Russia would do. And just to close, we have to remember that Ukraine, before the conflict, after the U.S.-backed coup in 2014, became a de facto NATO country. You had U.S. and European military advisors in there. You were sending in all sorts of NATO equipment, even though it wasn't technically uh, part of NATO. Uh, and uh, uh, and so, you know, the the I think that was, uh, you know, we we pushed Russia into a corner and they reacted in the way that most experts on Russia and Eastern Europe knew they would react um, and they got what they wanted. That's what they wanted. They want perpetual war that this is the American economy is built on perpetual war. We don't produce anything anymore but weapons virtually. uh, And and the militarists have complete and total control. I mean, the two parties, two ruling parties are completely subservient uh, to the militarists. And uh, Seymour Melman has wrote a very good book on this. The Columbia professor studied how the military distorted and destroyed our economy following World War II. So it's a, it's a tragic, unnecessary, I would argue even uh, criminal act on the part of the Western Alliance uh, because uh, they, they, they knew precisely what they were doing. Uh, and, uh, and and it should it, you know in, in a rational world, especially with Russia re- reaching out, remember especially after 9/11, uh, Putin really uh, and he had of course dealt with the Chechens and others, he really wanted to build an alliance. I mean in very good faith. Uh, and he was just rebuffed and rebuffed and uh, not only rebuffed, but humiliated. And, and this is what we get.
0: Yeah, and it's so important what you said, Chris, and I know you mentioned this in your latest article, the distinction between justification and, and contextualizing, right? Like you pointed out in this piece, like it's not reasonable to say, You're a Nazi apologist if you point out that the Treaty of Versailles was not a good idea or humiliating the Germans was not a good idea and contributed to Nazification and the Holocaust. That doesn't mean that you're saying that it was okay that it happened. But, you know, if we want these things not to happen, then that's obviously an important part of the discussion. But Bob, do you want to add anything to what Chris had to say? I mean, I have many more questions for you guys, but I don't know if you wanted to...
1: I think what the, the whole, what's really at stake here is a, an absolute denial of the right of anybody else in the world to make their own history and a reductionist argument about any other country as to what their choices, their intentions, and so forth. And, you know, history is a complex matter. Aspirations are complex. Nationalism is complex. And I, I was in Chernobyl a year after the disaster. And, you know, I I saw the connection between Russian people and Ukrainian people. It's all mixed up. You know, uh, my mother came from Lithuania, but sometimes it was Poland and sometimes it was Russia and so forth. She came after the revolution. She was one of the first Jewish refugees and was suppressed. And so what I find uh, appalling about this and, and, and there's this is amazing. I didn't think at this point in my life I would be welcoming Henry Kissinger or Richard Nixon or any of these people. But at least they had a sense of the complexity of history. You know, and this idea of the good guy, bad guy, you know, as if there's no legitimate Russian claim to Crimea, you know, or to a warm water port. Or, you know, or there's no connection, organic connection with the history or the Russian speaking part of the Ukraine have no legitimate concerns. You know, I heard this crap in, in, when I first went to South Vietnam, you know, oh, we had our good war. The South Vietnamese under the Diem, they're the Democrats, they're the freedom people, those communists, you know, they'll suppress the Virgin Mary and they'll conquer the world and all that, you know. So we always have these fantasies and, and neither the Russian Federation nor the Ukraine are, are these the simplistic cartoons that we're developing. You have people whose lives have overlapped, families have overlapped, uh, you have religious issues, you have language issues, historical perspective, and and so forth. And what happened is that uh, after this this coup that we created, and the record is quite clear, what they were aiming at is preventing a peaceful resolution of these conflicts. You know, how do you protect people who are Russian speaking? How do you get to live together? All the stuff that peace movements are based on. How do we find our common humanity so we don't have to kill each other? Because when I was at Chernobyl, I had a hard time figuring out who was Ukrainian uh, from the Ukrainian side, and who was from the Russian side. You know, we were worried about this place blowing up. You know, and what are you going to do about it? And the plume was going to get everyone soon, and so forth. And what we have now, and this is really frightening, very, very frightening. I'm more frightened now that I was during the height of the Cold War, because we now have people totally using this for domestic political purpose. We have not one single Democrat. There are some Republicans who have spoken out, but I don't know of a single Democrat in the House or Senate that has said, give peace a chance, negotiate, find some common ground. We now have a report that actually the Ukrainians and the Russians had had an agreement back in April and that, you know, the Brits come in and the you know, well, no, we're not going to let you have that. And I think what, what Chris said first is really the fundamental point. Does the United States need war? This is a question that was raised in Gorbachev's book on Peristorica. We are ready for peace. We don't need an enemy. We need to solve our problems. His examination of the problems of the Soviet Union were ruthless. He said communism is a failure. okay. We have to work our way out of this, and we can't do it through military conquest, and we can't do it through oppressing our population. I defy anyone to read his book on Poros and not feel admiration for Gorbachev as a believer in democracy with a small d, you know, a believer in the people having control. It's so clearly laid out. And by the way, he became unpopular in his own country because he wouldn't be a demagogue and he wouldn't lie about it. He says it's going to be really. Rough to do. Now you would think that if we were really the inheritors of some great democratic tradition, we would have welcomed that. You know, one historians will have to figure out why was Gorbachev rejected, smeared, undermined by the United States. Remember, he was even arrested by people we were backing. You know, almost lost his life right at the beginning. And and, and why? Because we are not serious about wanting democracy in the world. That's really the issue. We want compliant agents of our power, you know? And and if we don't recognize that, I mean we can always This is what Orwell's message, Orwell was not naive about communism, okay? But what he was saying was the real danger here is that the people who think they're enlightened democrats in the West are going to find enemies and they're going to use that as a substitute for any other purpose. In life, caring about your own people. Look what's happened to global warming. The whole issue is forgotten. And by the way, I don't think the real problem right now is war with Russia. I think the real problem is that the U.S. is beefing up for a war with China in the middle of this whole thing where we got all trying to figure out what's going on in Europe. Why do you bring up Taiwan? I mean, my God, you know, what is this? Go back 20 years and, and Nancy Pelosi's, what is she going to accomplish there? Is that going to bring about a calmer atmosphere? No, that's a troublemaker. That's not an adult watching the store. That's somebody who's so obsessed with their political leverage and their party's narrow future that they're willing to have a war with China. You know, I mean, why are you bringing that issue up? Nixon settled that issue. Okay, we can live with them. We're not going to fight about that island, you know, and China was accepting it. Now, suddenly, in the middle of this whole thing, you know, what? We're going to have war with China? And, and, you know, we're going to have a conflict in the Straits? So I think I don't want to, I'm not saying Chris is underestimating this, but I think we're in the hands of really irresponsible people now, you know? And I I have to ask that question. You know, some of these people I have admired before, Barbara Lee, you know, uh, God, the only person, she supports Pelosi. Ed Markey, senator from Massachusetts, who spent much of his Life and is a representative warning about nuclear war, you know. I remember interviewing these people. Not one of them speaks up now, you know. And and let me raise one thing that Chris raised in his piece for The Post: red baiting. Suddenly, anybody who speaks up, consortium news. Anybody who speaks up, you know, maybe think they're wrong, but they become the enemy. I mean, really, what this is McCarthyism with a vengeance. You know, you you cannot have a dialogue now or raise a question, you know, let's go another way. You know, John Lennon <laughs> would, would, would be jailed now. I mean, uh, uh, you know, it, it's startling. And and why? Because going back to something Chris just said before, they have nothing else to offer. They really don't think they can beat China in the marketplace and produce things better. They really, you know, what one thing Russia has done now is they said, you know, we producers of primary goods, you know, the raw materials and so forth, we can get a higher price and we can use this as leverage. We don't always have to have a back seat. And so the real issue now is that we have stupidly forged an alliance between China and Russia, who, by the way, couldn't get along under communism when they were both run by communist parties that were fighting. When we lost the most ignominious defeat we ever had in Vietnam. What happened? They, Vietnamese communists didn't invade San Diego. The Vietnamese communists and the Chinese communists went to war over some islands now and back then over their border. And yet now with this ultimate stupidity, and we have to use that word, dangerous stupidity, we have brought about an alliance that could not be done ideologically, right? And what is happening? Russia is selling its main customers now is India. You know, we've, we've cooled out things between China and India. Uh, China is a great market. There's a, you know, this is not going to bring jobs back for American workers. This is not going to improve our standard of living. This is just stupid stuff, you know? And somebody like Nixon, I interviewed Nixon. I interviewed a number of these people at the same time that I was covering what was happening in Russia with Gorbachev. And Nixon, I did interview him for the Los Angeles Times. He was very clear that we should not pick a fight uh, with Russia. You know, it, is, it was crazy. And uh, certainly not pick a fight with China. Well, what? what? And I have to go back. Well, sorry, last thing. I have to go back to the Democratic Party. They are not the lesser evil on this. The Democratic Party are the major, the major warmongers now. They even attacked, uh, you know, uh, Trump for being a commie simp or a Russia simp or something. They red-baited Trump. And that's startling. You know, the Democrats are out of control. And, and people don't want to say that. They're incredibly dangerous. They're indifferent to the possibility of of accidental nuclear war. They're they're throwing their weight around. And I think it's really a frightening moment. Where is the peace movement?
0: Yeah, they're not very present. I wanted to ask you, Chris, if you could explain to people, because a lot of people don't know about Gorbachev, Yeltsin how the Soviet Union even ended. And actually in in preparing for this show today, I was listening to the late Stephen Cohen, who was on a panel and talking about how he didn't like the term, the collapse of the Soviet Union, because it made it seem like it was some inevitable thing that was almost endemic to the Soviet Union, as opposed to something that actually didn't have to happen. He saw it as a combination of Gorbachev's commitment to reform and Yeltsin's commitment to power. What do you think of that thesis, or what do you see as the major cause of the end of the Soviet Union?
2: It collapsed under its own weight. Uh, remember, the hardliners went after Gorbachev, and they threw him out of power in 91, I think. Uh, they got rid of him. Uh, so, uh, but, you know, nothing was functioning. It is, it, it, it uh, and and they, and like all late regimes, it wasn't willing to use a kind of coercion and violence and force that it had used decades earlier uh, under Stalin to exert control. Uh, that's also characteristic of late empire, that kind of will to power dissipates. Um, so I, I would again go back, I think Putin's correct, in that uh, Gorbachev was uh, however well-meaning didn't understand the forces that he unleashed. He believed that the Soviet Union was reformable, uh, and it wasn't. Uh, he, I, I, he, I, I think he was a believer. I don't think I, Bob, I didn't read his book. Bob did, so Bob can correct me if I'm wrong. But I don't think he foresaw the end of the Soviet Union. He was a much a figure, much like Dubcek, uh, in. Czechoslovakia, so it was a socialism with a human face. Um, but at that point, the ossification of the system was such uh, that it, it was beyond saving. I mean, that would be my take. I don't know if Bob would agree.
1: I would disagree uh, respectfully, but I, I, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Uh, but my sense was, uh, and also, I happened to be in China during the Cultural Revolution. I've kind of popped around and covered a lot of these things. And uh, when reform came to China, it was as surprising as anything, you know. Uh, Where did it come from? Well, it came from a sense of necessity. The thing's not working. How do you make it better? How do you change it? Uh, Shock therapy. And one of the myths in the Cold War is that these other countries could never change. They were permanent enemies because of some ideology of Marxist-Leninism, communist rule or something. That was the the, the theory, right? And there was no such thing as moderating. Well, exactly the opposite has happened in China. This country that was the fiercest expression of communism and totalitarianism changed. Changed dramatically, created a burgeoning middle class of hundreds of millions of people, uh, a consumerist society a market economy. I think that's what uh, uh, Gorbachev had in mind uh, for the Soviet Union, which he spells out in his book. He believed, he talked about the market economy. He understood why the command economy failed. And he laid it out. And by the way, I reviewed that book for Moscow News, and it was the review was in Russian and in 24 other languages, as well as the LA Times. So I was in Moscow watching people read my story, my review on the window where they were pasted up and having arguments about it. You know, whether it could work and whether it would work and could he last and so forth. Uh, But the idea that these societies can't change, including, say, Muslim theoretical, which Iran right now, that they can't change, uh, become self-fulfilling prophecies. You isolate them, you combat them, you build up walls against them. It's absurd to think that we couldn't be doing business with Putin. It's absurd to say that there couldn't have been peace talks back 10 years ago about what to do about Crimea to assure, for instance, that the Russians could get water to to their, their place or that they could travel or have some kind of land bridge. There are lots of things you negotiate, you know. Uh, you know, we've done it. We have a relationship to Puerto Rico, Hawaii, Alaska. You know, you, you, you can do this if you have the will. It's better than war. And I agree with, with Chris. I don't defend war. I don't even like nationalism. But it exists. People have their fears, their aspirations, their national culture, their history. That's where negotiations come in. You figure out, OK, how do we get this secure area? you know? And, and in that negotiation that evidently uh, England and I guess the United States pulled the plug on, that was the deal. We go back to the way it was before this. You're still in Crimea. We'll talk about it. We're not going to, Ukraine's not going to join NATO, uh, you know, but we'll have support from individual countries. There was accommodation. That's what negotiations are supposed to be about, you know? And it's a, it's wild to think about it. If I suggest here now, Biden go and talk to Putin, you know, ah, I'd be a traitor. But what did Richard Nixon do? You know, he didn't say, oh, I'm going to go talk to the people in Taiwan. He said, no, I'm going to go to Beijing. I'm going to go with Khrushchev. I'm going to drink my ties together and we're going to make a deal. And you know what? The world benefited from the deal. We wouldn't have gone through the pandemic without all the stuff that was produced in China. It's a much better world that there's, you know, hundreds of millions of people in China living a better life and so forth, and, you know, so we've lost this idea of negotiation, of diplomacy, you know, getting a half a loaf? It's gone. And, and you have these people talking like ahead you know, of our, our, our armed forces about humiliation and destruction, It's no longer even hinting at regime change. you know, our way or the highway? Well, that, that's not adult behavior. And, you know, again, I never thought I would sit here somewhere and say, let's look at what Kissinger just said. Let's listen to Henry Kissinger, but I'm sorry. He's one of the sane people out there now. And if Richard Nixon were alive, (laughs) you know, I, I think he would think, what the hell is going on here? You know, I think the Democratic Party is out of control. I don't mind saying that. And I think rather than risk a defeat in the election, and to score points against Trump and to sound, you know, more pro-American and more patriotic than anyone, the Democrats are playing an incredibly risky game. And let me just throw one other Christian. I don't think you break into the home of an ex-president and humiliate him this way and looking for spy connection. That was never done before. They all took documents home. They all wanted to write their book. I can tell you, Richard Nixon had a lot of, I was in his office and. Manhattan, he had a lot of classified documents there. He was writing books all the time, you know, and, and what they've done, they, they, this polarization goes two ways. Yeah, uh, Trump's a bully, out of control, no doubt, uh, you know, but so are the Democrats. They want their pound of flesh. And so it's a dangerous situation domestically. Internationally, we've we got a bunch of nutcases uh, playing with the world right now.
2: I agree with Bob. I just want to go back to the collapse of the Soviet Union because what happened, especially under Yeltsin, was that the oligarchs seized at you know ridiculously bargain basement prices all the assets of the state, uh, and and then at that point essentially created and and this is w- why Putin was so revered because he fought back against this predatory oligarchic class that had thrust the Russia into tremendous poverty. And it was just, uh, you know, uh, oligarchic hyper-capitalism on steroids. Uh, And these people had no interest in perpetuating the state. It became completely mercenary in the same way that large corporations, the pharmaceutical industry, uh, the banks within the United States that have all consolidated, uh, again, through corruption and fraud, have become completely mercenary. And this is why Putin was such a, has been such a popular figure because he fought back. But whether at that point, once all of those state assets had been seized by these corrupt oligarchs, that state could have ever been pieced back together, I, I don't think so.
1: No, nor do I think it would be wonderful to piece it back together. I mean, I have no stake in hoping that the Soviet—I think it was a crummy model from day one— You know, uh, I don't believe in authoritarian governments. I don't believe they can ever serve the people. So I certainly did not cry any tears over the collapse of the Soviet Union. But if you think of the interests of ordinary people, you have to think of transitions that don't tear them apart. And what I saw in my time there was that ordinary people were being, you know, hurt terribly. Their pensions were devalued. They couldn't get food. Uh, you know, they they were being exploited. Uh, I mentioned it before, sexual exploitation, rampant prostitution. This offended some of the traditionalists, the Orthodox Church and so forth, which Putin plays to bringing back pride. Uh, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, what, the most, a controversial thing. I put it in my review at that time. I haven't read that thing. It was in 87, but I pointed out Gorbachev was already becoming unpopular. The most unpopular thing he did was try to limit liquor sales, vodka sales. Okay. Why? Because the population is, is beside, they're, they're drunk, you know, they can't function. Uh, you know, this was the great escape, you know, was alcohol. And, and uh, again, Gorbachev, Comes in like Putin, you know, hey, we got to sober up here and, and, you know, get back to work and pay attention and not waste, waste all, let harvesting machines rust that we pay so much money for and all that. And that in the popular eye, people had settled in to a kind of corrupt society. We always think of the old Soviet Union as just brutal oppression. No. Many people could accommodate the system. there was guaranteed job. You got a pension, you got this, you got taken care of. Maybe you had a relative could get you something, and you stood in the right line at the right place. So what, what a reformer runs into, and Gorbachev is very honest about that in his book, you know, it ain't going to be easy. you know People have accommodated a certain way of life. And here's this guy comes along and commits the fatal error. Of telling them what they don't want to hear, you know it ain't going to be easy. And he, but he made it very clear: in order for us to progress, we got to stop making weapons. We got to stop trying to control the world. That was very clear. We can't, you know, have imperial ambitions. I think if people would read his book, Perestroika, you will not find it's Jeffersonian in, 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 in its tone and. It's thrust. It's all about dismantling state power, you know, uh, national aspirations, false patriotism. Uh, George Washington in his farewell address warned us about the presumptions of, you know, patriotism, uh, pretensions of patriotism. That's what Gorbachev's warning about. about. We, we shoot up to the moon and we can do this and do that, but we can't feed our people. We can't bring the crop in and so forth. And anybody reading that, this is where I fault American policymakers, other than ones who embraced it. But reading that, you would know you have an invitation now to help the transition of that society, whatever it calls itself. You can help that transition to some degree, considerable degree. We've done that with China by trading, by doing business. China has had the most remarkable transition from a command economy to the most successful market economy in the world, right now, you know why? Because we didn't any longer feel the need to provoke them at every turn. Suddenly, now we're doing that. Suddenly, we're returning to the madness of the Cold War, and we're trying to get a war going with China. You know, it's not enough to get a war going with Russia. We want the whole, you know, the whole thing there. And I, I would like somebody to tell me how this is rational behavior. You know, what happens if we really get the Chinese to clamp down more and go to a tougher model and, you know, and suppress their people? That's what we're asking for. You know, we're, we're saying we want to put China on a war footing. They're amping up their military budget. And by the way, we're doing that to the West. Look at one of the we're talking about global warming. That's this existential crisis. The last thing we want is people blowing things up. Right. That's the way. You, you kill the climate more rapidly than anything. Why in the world do we want Germany, which had been pledged to not become another militarized society, to be ramping up its military budget now? Why is that a good thing? You know, one thing we came out of the Second World War, we said we don't ever want to see a militarized Germany. Everybody agreed. All most of the Germans, all the ones we don't want to be part of it. Now they're, they're thrilled. The liberal media, the mass media is thrilled that Germany is building more weapons and those weapons are gonna be sent to, to what happens by the way if some of these weapons supplied say by Germany end up killing, you know, some large number of people in Russia, in the Russian Federation? What do they do? They blow up a German city? What happens now? And let's say we do have superior armaments and so forth. You know, everybody has always said on the U.S. side, the people when I, because I wrote a book called With Enough Shovels about the possibility of nuclear war fighting, and I interviewed Reagan and a lot of other people about that. They always had one bottom line. They said, you know, why do we make these weapons if we're not going to use them? Madeline Albright even says something like that. Hillary Clinton once said something like that. You know, well, you think they're not saying that in Russia right now? You know, the one thing the U.S. can't stop, we got these weapons. So I think that we're at the most dangerous moment we've ever been at. And particularly so, cause we have no opposition. You've got a handful of people that are objecting to it and they're crushed. And I, 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 I just want to make a plea about this. If you, if there's something horrible about consortium news, which for 25 years has educated us about the global crisis on all sorts of levels, now they're, they're fair game. We have government-sponsored agencies and so forth out to destroy him. And you could go down the list. Chris, in his most recent column, mentions all these people. We have a witch hunt that's making McCarthy look like like Trump change.
2: About the collapse of communism, because, and I I can't speak about Russia because I didn't cover it, but I did cover Eastern Europe. And what happened was uh, when these governments were overthrown, uh, the, uh, the ideology of neoliberalism uh, was sold to all of these Eastern European, Central European countries as a form of freedom. And, uh, and all of the good things, and there were many good things that happened at Ed- the educational system. And one of the reasons that tech companies and Western companies went into Czechoslovakia as fast as they could is because they had this incredibly well educated, literate, population uh, you had health care you had a guaranteed job I, I lived in Yugoslavia for three years uh, uh, under uh Tito uh, and, and 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 so in the name of freedom all of that uh, all of these social benefits were uh, di- completely discarded you didn't see homeless people you know there were, so there were uh very positive aspects to these communist Uh, Governments, however repressive they may have been. And what happened with the conversion to neoliberalism is that suddenly the bottom fell out for these people. And the consequence of that was the rise of these proto fascists like Orban. I was in Poland not long ago. Uh, All of these figures uh, that, in many ways, of course, replicate Trump. Uh, And and I think that's an important element to remember.
0: Chris, if you could just. We don't have enough time to get into as much as I'd like to. You both have been so generous. But if you could summarize this really great piece that Bob just mentioned, where you talk about NewsGuard and the way that this endless war we have in Ukraine and how censorship is a part and parcel of that war.
2: I mean, the, the, and I really, you know, I'm off of uh, Melman's research that the permanent war economy has to control the debate, which they do very effectively. It's why every time you turn on CNN, MSNBC, it doesn't matter. It's all these ex-generals and former intelligence and Clapper and Brennan and everyone else. Uh, And uh, and that's why they're going after alternative press that cry out against this uh, suicidal militarism that is not only dangerous globally, but disemboweling the country. And now we have NewsGuard. That's just one of many kind of tools that they use, the militarists use, and they're raiding sites. Now, they're giving, you know, Consortium News a, a red, you know, because it's, it's not uh, accurate news or whatever, and it's not trustworthy news. Uh, they, they, they actually gave a green, I mean, it's kind of childish, and it's completely arbitrary, but they gave green tag to Fox News till they got called out for it. but So they finally gave Fox a red tag, but they gave MSNBC a red tag at the same time, I guess, for balance. They give the Daily Caller a green tag, even though it published fake Naked, supposedly pictures of Alexandria Ocasio. I mean, this is ridiculous. But what what they're doing is going after the militarists, and it's and, and so people who read uh, these sites they don't care. But the effect is that when you have NewsGuard and there being, it's this filter is being uh, downloaded in school. It's so scary, you know. Active duty service members have it on their computers. What it does is it warns you away from that site. Essentially, you're blacklisting that site. Uh, that drives away advertisers. Let's stop. And that is clearly the intent. Uh, and it's a very short step once you've blacklisted it to essentially shutting it out. But look on the Sheer Post. Uh, the article is called uh, Ukraine and the Politics of Permanent War. And it explains it uh, in detail. And I just put a pitch for Bob, who runs out of his piggy bank. Uh, you know, sign up and. Pay for it. I don't charge Bob for my columns. Uh, that's my contribution. Uh, but we got to keep sites like SharePost, Consortium News, uh, Gray Zone, We got to keep them alive because I mean they're 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 not only under assault, uh, but the algorithms and everything else are already arrayed against them to essentially uh, effectively marginalize them. And we know precisely what the next step is going to be.
0: Right, and NewsGuard is this I mean it's obviously going to have an effect on on people taking certain sites seriously. They're not going to have as much cred and it's a very sketchy shady entity that has people from
2: We know who's on it. I mean Hayden, the, you know, it's all these uh, Yeah,
0: the former CIA director and NSA, yeah.
2: on the advisory board. It's clearly a tool. It's a for-profit organization and you know, all the think tanks uh, you know, that's the other thing. The militarists have all the money. So that's why they own the two ruling parties. It's why from the Heritage Foundation on down, uh, they're, they're all cheerleading one war after another. It doesn't matter how many debacles going all the way back to Vietnam. These people have visited upon uh, innocent people around the world and on uh, ourselves. Uh, it it uh, uh, So uh it, it's a very you know this is it's a kind of creeping coup d'etat and and the militarists are a state within a state. they're unassailable. we can't even audit them. Uh, and i Karl Leibniz, I end the article by quoting the great German socialist Karl Leibniz, who reminded Germans at the height of World War one about the enemy within and he meant the military. and we have the same.
1: I resent the idea that these people who have lied to us so often and craven and they cave in before power and now they cheer when the FBI breaks into something and the CIA and they, you know, have all these generals who have lied to us about things on their shows and they somehow, they're real news. And those of us who challenge the dominant narrative, right? And that includes people who are on the conservative side or what have you, but who challenge it. Which is, after all, what democracy needs, a uh, challenge. We are made uh, non-persons. We're, we're silence. And I just that review that, that we're talking about, when I reviewed Gorbachev's book in I was there in the Soviet Union, I published my review, uh, you know, right there in Moscow News. I was still there. And I read that review because <laughs> we reprinted it now when Gorbachev died. And I had no hesitation to blast Gorbachev for not attacking the Russian position in Afghanistan, which was still going on. I had no, and I'm not tooting my own horn here. It was just my nature. I was writing there and I blasted him for the treatment of Jewish people and their identification uh, of Zionism with anti, you know, uh, a bad thing necessarily. Uh, I pointed out, you know, and then Gorbachev actually in his book waffled a little on this because the Soviet Union was actually the first or second nation of that recognized Israel, but even that kind of simplicity—and I know Chris Hedges, nobody tells him what to think or say or when to say it. He's fiercely independent, you know, and and that's true of a lot of the other people we're talking about who are dissenting, you know. Uh, And and, uh, Scott Ritter, for instance, who exposed the lies about weapons of mass destruction, but was a marine weapons inspector and a brave patron and so forth. All of these people get thrown into the same bag of being like Putin apologists or or lacking patriotism. It's garbage. The whole basis of the United States was dissent is the saving grace, right? I mean, that's what the whole protection of these amendments and everything... Is because the founder said we have to protect dissent because we're going to become monsters. And the only way you stop us from becoming monsters is to have dissent. And now you have a mood where, in liberal circles, this is why I keep getting back to this I find no respect for dissent. I find no respect for challenging the dominant narrative. And you have people like Greyzo mentioned, and so, Max Blumenthal, and so forth, who have the guts. To follow their ideas and document them and maybe come to a different conclusion. And now no one gives them any credit. And then you have human rights organizations that are supposed to protect the dissidents, you know, and Penn is certainly one of them. And suddenly they'll throw Julian Assange. Oh, no, we're not even going to talk about it. Uh, Julian Assange, one of the great, you know, dissenters trying to keep these democratic societies straight, focused, you know. Uh, no. Join in the chorus of of, you know, super patriotism and lying. And and so, I again, what I read about this dangerous moment it's this lesser evil thing, you know? Somehow we're not Trump. And now, you know what? We're more patriotic. And we can red-bait Trump. And now we can even have a war. And maybe with a war, we'll hold on to the Congress. And won't that be great? That's the subtext here. You know, yeah, a lot of people might get killed. You know what? How many got killed in Vietnam, which was basically a democratic war? McNamara in Fargo War documentary said three and a half million. The figure was probably closer to five million. You know, why? Why do these wars happen? Why did Lyndon Johnson pursue it and so forth? And, and so I think the, the real argument here is who, who believes in real news? Who believes in democracy? Who believes in freedom? And I would take a, a Daniel Ellsberg, uh, you know, who one guy really stood up and said, wait a minute, this whole thing is a bunch of lies or Edward Snowden or Julian Assange, you know, or Chelsea Manning, you know, and say, wait a minute, that's that's the saving grace here, you know, but why are there so few of them? And what are all those folks at the New York Times or embassy, what are they thinking? Do they think this is some kind of game?
2: Well, they're, they're careerists, Bob. We know what they're thinking. They they know what's good for their career. They're absolutely amoral. I worked with them for a long time. You did too. Let's not forget Daniel Hale. I just went out to Maury in Illinois to visit him in a federal prison who exposed the widespread civilian casualties, probably up to 90 percent of people from our militarized drones in countries like Afghanistan were innocents. He had the courage to expose it and look where he is, locked in a, in a, a uh, uh, special wing of uh, what was the premier supermax prison in the country before uh, Florence, Colorado, was built. I mean, this is it should terrify all of us who care about freedom of expression, democracy, and everything else. I mean, all of the flashing red lights are there, uh, but uh, the, the media itself, uh, the mainstream, the corporate media, has uh, uh, essentially collapsed as as an institution that actually. Uh, traffic's in news, and that's why its approval ratings. I think oh, it's eleven percent or something for uh, electronic media, and sixteen percent uh, for newspapers. Or I might have that reversed. It's in my column, but I mean it's almost nothing. Uh, it's, I think the approval ratings maybe even lower than Congress, and it should be. Uh, and and you know the last of us, or, or you know this this kind of small remnant of those of us who actually care about journalism, the, the actual profession of journalists are, are just being snuffed out.
1: One last point, if I can. This media that you've accurately described as in really inherently corrupt career as self-serving has been also able to destroy, you know, the internet is sort of the best and the worst of all worlds. We recognize that, you know, uh, it ends any concern of, of privacy. so. But, But however, in the last years, we had some openness and one thing that is not seriously discussed is the mass media, not content just to join the parade of madness, has actually, in the interest of fattening their profit or surviving, gotten these big um, internet companies, the Googles, the Facebooks, and so forth, intimidated them actually, although not often necessary, to kill any alternative journalism. And it's something that's just not discussed enough. It's much more effective, you know, than the secret police and so forth, because it's done in the name of responsibility and freedom and what have you. But I can tell you, as somebody who's been, you know, trying to publish on the internet, it's a world of difference now than it was even four years ago, three years ago. You just don't get the traffic. And this is true of all the sites that dissent. They, they block you out. And no one knows you're being blocked out, and the stuff doesn't go. I can, I, I can see it. I run Chris Hedges, but if I put in Chris Hedges, uh, uh, I don't get SharePost. <laughs> you know, I'll get the occasional more respectable journal that might be carrying him, until the day they don't carry him. You know, but the fact of the matter is, the game of media is more tightly rigged than I've ever experienced it, because at least in capitalism there were contradictions. If you could find readers, you know, then you could be in business and the old advertising model. That's gone. And now, you know, you have the same people that will benefit from suppressing dissent, whether on the left or right, you know, and they're able to say, hey, we'll have we'll change the algorithm. and You just don't exist. You just don't exist to show that we're doing now. You know, it's not going to reach the number that it would have reached three years ago. It just won't that's the reality okay and so uh thanks for having us <laughs> we always keep trying
2: remember that if you went back a few decades this is the kind of discussion that you would have heard on public television or public radio which is why public media was created to give space to people who weren't beholden to a particular political party or controlled by some corporation that was all gone i mean we forget that you go back to the 70s you could see chomsky you could see Zinn uh, you know even going back to the 60s uh, you could see Malcolm X and all and Angela Davis I mean there was so that space was snuffed out and you know I did my show on RT America on contact with not one show was on Russia uh, I was a wonky show that should be on a functioning public broadcasting system at one in the morning I mostly interviewed authors and I always read the books and uh and uh and that's all, that was all erased from YouTube, all, six years of it, just taken down, erased. I didn't violate any of YouTube's standards. In uh, other words, not, nothing on Russia. In fact, a very few times Putin was mentioned, it was not in flattering terms. Um, but we went after the, the disease of militarism. We, we did constant shows on uh, the persecution of Julian Assange. That's why it's gone. I mean, it, it's not an accident that it's gone. Nope.
0: All right. Well... Make sure you subscribe to Bob's website, to Chris's Substack. That's sheer post. We have links in the description, but I'm going to thank Chris and Bob so much for their time. As always, amazing to hear from you. So thank you, Chris. And thank you, Bob. And hope to see you too soon. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper, Nick Palm, Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman, and our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.